Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, thanks again for coming back, everyone. Today, we'll continue through our vascular rashes by talking about a very common clinical presentation that can make many doctors, including dermatologists, throw their hands up. And we're going to be talking about viral exanthems. And why can they be so frustrating? There are literally hundreds of different viruses that can cause a morbilliform rash. So as the type A people that we are, it's tough to not always know the exact cause. In today's episode, we'll go beyond simply labeling a rash as a viral exanthem and discuss the common causes and the less commonly seen viral exanthems like measles that we cannot miss and they are highly testable. We'll mostly be focusing on the clinical presentation of these disorders since treatment is mostly supportive unless, God forbid, you're managing a measles patient with vitamin A and airborne isolation precautions, which we won't have time to get into today. And since many of these rashes show up in our pediatric patients, we have our pediatric dermatologist, Dr. Binky, joining us again today to give us some pearls. Screaming kids don't scare me. But sometimes the parents do. We used that toxic chemical-filled steroid cream three times, and now he's blinking a lot, and he still has a rash. And as always, we'll kick off the episode with a quick review of our reaction patterns and include our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only. It should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. Now remember, rashes and lesions typically take on one of five reaction patterns. Papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. When it comes to the vascular reaction pattern, we break them into eight groups or individual entities, which include 1. Erythema multiforme, 2. The toxic erythema group, which includes drug eruptions like SJS and TEN, the viral exanthems, which we'll discuss today, or the toxin-mediated eruptions including scarlet fever, staph-scalded skin, toxic shock syndrome, and Kawasaki disease. Then the third vascular group is the figurate erythema group, which includes EAC, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Then four, we have urticaria, five, vasculitis, six, vasculopathy, seven, retiform purpura, and eight, vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. Now, let's get to our morbilliform rashes and first start with a little background. The term morbilliform describes a measles-like rash that consists of erythematous macules and papules that coalesce on the trunk, arms, and legs. For some reason, it's blasphemy to call them maculopapular rashes in the dermatology world, so try to stick with morbilliform if you want to fit in. Ah, you didn't think I was listening. You should know I'm always on the lookout for imbeciles. You're darn right I value correct terminology. I want to hear morbilliform, none of that maculopapular nonsense. When you see a morbilliform rash, I want you to first think bug and drug, with bug referring to infectious causes like the viral exanthems that we'll discuss today, and drug referring to drug reactions. Some other causes for morbilliform or similar appearing rashes to keep in the back of your mind include urticaria, arthropod reactions, and papulosquamous disorders like early gut psoriasis or pityriasis rosea. 
Morbilliform rashes are common in all ages, but they're typically caused by viral infections in kids and medication reactions in adults. Again, morbilliform rashes in kids are typically caused by viral infections, while morbilliform rashes in adults are more likely medication reactions. For viral exanthems, it's believed that the virus disseminates to the skin and mucosa from the blood, and the rash we see clinically is the patient's immune response to that virus in the skin and possibly the mucosa. It's like a subtle hypersensitivity reaction, and some viruses are better at causing rashes compared to others. Viruses such as measles or parvovirus B19 cause an exanthem most of the time, whereas others such as respiratory syncytial virus, aka RSV, cause an exanthem less than 1% of the time. And just a terminology thing, exanthem refers to rashes on the skin surfaces, whereas enanthems, spelled E-N-A-N-T-H-E-M-S, enanthems refer to changes on the mucous membranes, such as coplic spots of measles. When it comes to viral exanthems, they are typically nonspecific without distinctive features. However, there are certain viruses that cause distinct exanthems and enanthems that we'll discuss. We've been feeding him organic, vegan, freeze-dried space food from Whole Foods, and he still has a rash. Whoa. So, anyways... Can you guys name the classic childhood exanthems one through six, starting with first disease? The classic childhood diseases were named in the order that they were discovered. First disease refers to measles, aka rubiola. Second disease is scarlet fever, which is obviously not viral and caused by strep. Third disease is rubella, a.k.a. German measles. Fourth disease referred to a condition called Duke's disease that is no longer considered a distinct disorder, so it gets skipped like the 13th floor on most hotels. And then we have fifth disease, which is erythema infectiosum caused by parvovirus B19. And then sixth disease is roseola infantum. These childhood exanthems are helpful to memorize because they not only give us a differential to think about, but they include conditions that can have some serious complications. So again, first disease refers to measles, aka rubiola, second disease is scarlet fever, third disease is rubella, aka German measles, skipping to fifth disease, which is erythema infectiosum caused by parvovirus B19, and sixth disease is roseola infantum. So if you're like me and always mix up rubiola, aka measles, and rubella, aka German measles, here's a silly little mnemonic I learned in med school that really helped me. For German measles, a.k.a. rubella, picture a war scene and remember the phrase, the three-day German rubellion, with rubellion referring to rubella. If you can remember three-day German rubellion to remember that rubella causes the three-day German measles, then you can easily remember that rubiola is not German measles because instead it refers to straight-up measles. And if I confused you, I'm sorry, you're on your own with these. Wow, I think that's actually kind of helpful. This reminds me of the time when I was in residency when Grumpy went on a three-day work rebellion because of the new German hematologist that took his parking spot. So let's talk some very basic clinical highlights of these classic viral childhood exanthems, starting with first disease, measles, aka rubiola. 
it is a highly infectious RNA virus that is transmitted through respiratory droplets. Patients start out with a prodrome of fever and the three C's, cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis, with coryza referring to a runny nose. A few days after that, patients get the classic morbilliform rash that starts behind the ears and on the frontal hairline and then spreads downward onto the body. All right, guys. So what is the anantham for measles and what is the dreaded complication? So these would be the copelic spots, which typically appear prior to the morbilliform rash and present as small, white-gray papules on the buccal mucosa near the molars. As far as complications for measles go, besides the associated pneumonia and ear infections, the dreaded complication is subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which occurs around 10 years after the acute infection and presents with devastating neurologic symptoms like seizures, coma, and death. So next, we'll skip second disease, aka scarlet fever, since we'll discuss it in the toxin-mediated rashes in the next episode. Instead, let's quickly touch on third disease, aka three-day or German measles, which is caused by which virus again? German measles is caused by rubella, the three-day German rubellion. They say I overreacted to the parking lot incident of 99, but I remember it differently. And regardless, I started the dermatology department in this wretched place. German measles and regular measles differ in that 1. German measles is typically milder and has a shorter course, thus the three-day measles name. And then 2. The enanthem is also different in that German measles patients have Forsheimer spots, which refers to petechia on the palate. You can remember that because basically Forsheimer sounds very German. And then we have 3. Patients with German measles also tend to have more impressive lymphadenopathy. Again, German measles is milder and has a shorter course, has Forsheimer spots, which are petechia on the palate, and also has more impressive lymphadenopathy compared to regular measles. Cases are usually self-limited and mild, but there's a couple things to keep in mind here. One is that there is a rare complication, including post-infection encephalitis that's seen in around 1 in 6,000 German measles cases, and two being that rubella is one of our torches infections that can pass vertically from mama to her baby, which for rubella can result in hearing and vision problems along with cardiovascular defects and mental retardation. We spent three weeks bathing in the Dead Sea. Timmy almost drowned. And he still has a rash. Oh, but it sounds like it was a great trip. All right, here's a more common one. Tell me what you know about fifth disease and name the virus that causes it. Fifth disease, aka erythema infectiosum, or slap cheek disease, is a common condition in young kids caused by the single-stranded DNA virus called parvovirus B19. The single-stranded nature of parvovirus B19 is a board's favorite to keep in mind, because most other DNA viruses are double-stranded. So, these erythema infectiosum patients start with a flu-like prodrome of fevers, headaches, and myalgias, with small joint arthralgias uncommonly occurring in around 10% of the cases. 
Then after several days, patients develop the characteristic erythematous slap cheeks, and then a couple days after that, they can get a morbilliform eruption that favors the extremities and may take on more of a reticulate lacy pattern. For kids with malar rashes, be sure to keep erythema infectiosum on your differential. So again, for erythema infectiosum, think flu-like prodrome, then the development of slap cheeks, and then the morbilliform eruption that favors the extremities and can be more reticulate in nature. You'll want to counsel your patients and their parents on three things. One being that the rash is self-limiting over several weeks. Two, it can also recycle itself and reoccur a second time, especially in adults with heat and sunlight exposure. And three, that patients are no longer infectious once the exanthem has appeared. Also keep in mind that erythema infectiosum is just one presentation of parvovirus B19 infections. If it infects patients who have blood disorders such as sickle cell disease or those who are immunosuppressed or pregnant, it can lead to serious issues with severe anemia or even hydrops fetalis in the fetus. Alright, so we've talked first disease, aka measles, skipped second disease, which is scarlet fever, we talked third disease, aka German measles or rubella, and then went over fifth disease, aka erythema infectiosum. Now moving on to sixth disease, aka roseola, which is also known as exanthem subitum. We switched him to organic wooden toys, and he still has a rash. Dr. Binky, can you imagine being a seven-year-old with a wooden iPad? Well, we didn't have iPads when I was seven, so I bet I wouldn't have minded that. But here's a question for my medical student. What virus causes roseola? So trick question, roseola is caused by multiple viruses, which are the double-stranded DNA human herpes viruses 6 and 7. Again, sixth disease, aka roseola, is believed to be caused by HHV 6 and 7. These viruses can also cause pityriasis rosea, and while we're on the topic, remember that HHV 8 causes Kaposi sarcoma. So anyways, these six disease roseola patients are typically babies between the ages of 6 to 12 months, since the maternal antibodies wear off around 6 months. The classic presentation is high fevers greater than 102 degrees Fahrenheit for up to 5 days while the patient does not appear to be very ill. These 5 days of fevers are then followed by a faint, rose-pink morbilliform rash that favors the trunk and lasts just a couple of days. Some associated features include febrile seizures as a result of those high fevers, along with upper respiratory symptoms, lymphadenopathy, and an enanthem with red macules on the soft palate and uvula. And what is the name of this enanthem? The enanthem of roseola is referred to as Nagayama spots. So to summarize the basics, roseola is likely caused by HHV 6 and 7 and classically presents in kids 6 to 12 months old with high fevers with possible febrile seizures, followed by a faint rose-pink morbilliform rash that favors the trunk and may have Nagayama spots, which are red macules of the soft palate and uvula. Besides the possible febrile seizures, roseola runs a mild course and treatment is supportive. All right, guys, let's pick your brain and test some of your viral knowledge. So if roseola is caused by HHV6 and possibly HHV7, can you name the human herpes viral infections in order from 1 to 7?
So now we're basically getting into trivia time. So we have HHV 1 and 2, which refers to herpes simplex 1 and 2, respectively. HH3 is varicella zoster virus, aka VZV, which causes chickenpox and shingles, as we know. And then HHV4 is Epstein-Barr virus, aka EBV. HHV5 is cytomegalovirus. HHV6 doesn't have a specific name, but causes roseola. HHV7 also doesn't have a specific name, but is associated with roseola and more so with pityriasis rosea. And then HHV8 has been associated with Kaposi's sarcoma and Castleman's disease, which is a non-malignant lymph node hyperplasia. So again, HHV1 and 2 are herpes simplex 1 and 2 respectively. HHV3 is varicella zoster virus, aka VZV, which causes chickenpox and shingles. HHV4 is Epstein-Barr virus. HHV5 is CMV, HHV6 causes roseola, HHV7 is associated with pityriasis rosea, and HHV8 has been associated with Kaposi sarcoma and Castleman's disease. We filled our entire swimming pool with oatmeal. Timmy almost drowned again, the cleaning robot caught fire, our dog is now obese, and as you can see, Timmy still has a rash. I told you to fill your bathtub with oatmeal, not your swimming pool. But that does sound fun. Anyways, another question for the medical students. Can you name five conditions caused by Epstein-Barr virus? For conditions caused by EBV, think about mononucleosis, Giannotti crosti syndrome, oral hairy leukoplakia, hydroa vaccinoformi, and Burkitt's lymphoma. Again, Epstein-Barr virus is implicated in mononucleosis, Giannotti crosti syndrome, oral hairy leukoplakia, hydroa vaccinoformi, and Burkitt's lymphoma. Although it's not in our vascular reaction pattern, I want to briefly give you some highlights on Giannotti crosti syndrome, since it's not that uncommon and not that well known outside of the derm world. It's also one of those diagnoses you'll get wrong a couple times before you finally get it right and start recognizing it. So, Giannotti crosti syndrome, aka papular acrodermatitis of childhood, is usually seen in preschool age kids, but ranges in onset from 6 months to the teenage years. Patients present with symmetric, monomorphous, pink-brown papules on the face, buttocks, and extremities with relative sparing of the trunk. This is a pretty unique distribution for viral rashes. So again, remember, Giannotti crosti syndrome typically presents in preschool-age kids with symmetric, monomorphous, pink-brown papules on the face, buttocks, and extremities with relative sparing of the trunk. These patients may have a few scattered lesions on the torso, but the rash is mostly centered on the face and extremities, thus the descriptive name papular acrodermatitis of childhood, with acro referring to the distal limbs. Giannotti crosti syndrome is most commonly associated with EBV in the U.S. and hepatitis B infections and vaccinations worldwide, but it can be seen with a long list of other viruses as well. Other possible symptoms of Giannotti crosti include fevers, lymphadenopathy, and splenomegaly. The rash usually resolves in a few weeks, and treatment is supportive unless suspicion for hepatitis leads to a workup that discovers hep B or C, which obviously needs treatment. All right, enough with these herpes viruses. This isn't Dr. Dude's college dorm room. Can you name three non-herpes viruses that can cause upper respiratory infections and viral exanthems? 
How about parainfluenza viruses, rhinovirus, influenza type A and B, and enteroviruses such as Coxsackie A16, which can also have GI symptoms along with upper respiratory symptoms? Again, some non-HHV viruses that can cause upper respiratory infections and viral exanthems include parainfluenza, rhinovirus, influenza, and enteroviruses such as Coxsackie A16, which can also have GI symptoms along with URI symptoms. When I think of Coxsackie A16, there's a childhood rash that comes right to my mind. What is it? Coxsackie A16 is commonly associated with hand, foot, and mouth disease. Affected kids start with a prodrome of fever, upper respiratory, and possibly GI symptoms like diarrhea or vomiting. They then develop a vesicular eruption or erythematous macules on the hands, feet, mouth, buttocks, and thighs. Because of this distribution, I want you to think of it as hand, foot, mouth, and butt disease. Since there are lesions of the palms, soles, and oral mucosa, we also keep early erythema multiforme as our main differential diagnosis for these patients, depending on lesion morphology and the age of the patient. For hand, foot, mouth, and butt disease, keep in mind that lesions of the oral mucosa can take on a macular, vesicular, or erosive morphology, which can be quite painful. And since hand, foot, mouth, and butt disease is self-limited but very contagious, parents should be warned to be religious about washing their hands, disinfecting fomites that can harbor the infections such as cell phones and door handles, and be especially conscious of hygiene when changing diapers, since Coxsackie virus and other enteroviruses are shed in the feces for weeks following infection. We deep-cleaned the house. We bleached the dog, and we've spent thousands of dollars on dairy-free, alcohol-free, organic hand sanitizer. And he still has a rash. Dr. Binky, why? Aw, how's your dog? Well, we'll get back to that later. So, if you have a unilateral rash on the lateral portion of the thorax, extending from the axilla to the inguinal crease with an iconic Statue of Liberty sign, where the child holds up their arm to show you the rash, what's the diagnosis? That would be unilateral laterothoracic exanthem. Again, a child with a morbilliform eruption that starts on one axilla or inguinal crease likely has a unilateral laterothoracic exanthem. They are believed to be caused by viruses and may spread to the other side of the body over time. However, they tend to favor one side of the body. The unilateral laterothoracic exanthem, like many other exanthems, resolves spontaneously over the course of a few weeks. Dr. Binky, I don't know what to do. We've tried everything. We restarted breastfeeding, and now Timmy's being made fun of at school. We shaved our dog and sold him to a homeless person. We've tried cupping and leeches, and now Timmy looks like he has leprosy. He can't even go to school. And we've been living in a straw hut for the last six weeks with a mud floor. And he still has a rash. I see your frustration, but as we discussed at your first visit six weeks ago... Timmy's rash is pityriasis rosea. Pityriasis rosea is a common childhood rash that's not harmful to Timmy and self-resolves without treatment in a maximum of eight weeks typically. So the pearl is that some early data has suggested that when PR occurs in the first 15 weeks of gestation, 
it can possibly lead to spontaneous abortion or premature delivery. And here's your question. When you have an adult who's sick enough to be in the hospital and you're suspicious for a viral cause, what are some other viruses that you should be thinking about? This would be your hemorrhagic fevers, including dengue fever and chikungunya, along with Zika virus, mononucleosis, or acute HIV infection. Again, for the very sick patient with a morbilliform rash, don't forget about the more serious viruses such as dengue fever, chikungunya, Zika virus, mononucleosis, or acute HIV. For a great article on these viruses, check out the JAD 2016 CME article titled Emerging Infectious Diseases with Cutaneous Manifestations, Viral and Bacterial Infections. All right, we're almost finished here. Rather than going through a scenario, I want to give you some quick pearls for your H&P before we close things out. As far as your history goes, besides getting your HPI and review of systems for things like flu-like symptoms, ask about the patient's history of immunizations. Obviously, your suspicion for vaccine-preventable diseases like measles or rubella has to be higher for kids without their vaccinations. Also, ask about siblings at home who are sick or if anything has been going around at daycare. Conditions like hand, foot, mouth, and butt disease are very contagious, and it obviously makes for an easier diagnosis if this is known to be going around at the daycare. Also, ask where on the body the rash started. If they say it started on the head or behind the ears, that's a red flag for measles, especially in those unvaccinated kids. When it comes to the examination of a patient with a morbilliform rash, a nice pearl to help you differentiate bug versus drug is to look for mucous membrane involvement, which is more suggestive of a viral infection over a drug eruption. And what are some of those enanthems again? Remember, copalic spots for measles are small white gray papules on the buccal mucosa which start before the exanthem. Forsheimer spots are the petechia on the palate seen in German measles, and Nagayama spots are red macules on the soft palate in uvula seen in roseola. When evaluating the rash, take a good look at the distribution. Is it unilateral in the axilla flank or groin? This suggests unilateral laterothoracic exanthem. Or maybe it's a young kid with lesions on the face and extremities with relative sparing of the torso. Then think Giannotti-Crosti syndrome, aka papular acrodermatitis of childhood. Also take note of the color and arrangement of lesions. Roseola has lighter rose-colored lesions, while fifth disease can take on a lacy reticulate arrangement. Also, it never hurts to look for lymphadenopathy, which, if you were in the unfortunate situation where you were worried about a kid with measles in your office, remember lymphadenopathy would suggest German measles over regular measles. Um, Dr. Binky, yeah, so I don't know how this happened, but last time we ended up on Dr. Chop's schedule, he started to me on some medication, I think it's called Ever? Ever Reg? Anyways, all his hair fell out last week. He can't taste anything, even ice cream. He pooped in his new bed, and he still has a rash. Laura, why would you put a baby on my schedule? I thought they were all superficial basal cells. I don't do rashes. I kill cancer. No! All right, my friends. Since we covered a little about a lot of viruses, we'll forego the final summary. 
All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.